we have been for 11 weeks working through a series on the Ten Commandments, and we, we finished tonight. Derek last week looked at the Tenth Commandment, and tonight is a bit of an epilogue to the series. The modern, modern person looks at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and says that the Ten Commandments are rules that suffocate a person's freedom. They are a boundary. Uh, they take away freedom. They don't give it. And the Bible comes and says the exact opposite. And we said this from week one, that the Bible comes and says the Ten Commandments are the law of perfect freedom. And the reason for that, the reason the Bible can say that, that the Ten Commandments are freeing, not restricting, is because they reflect God's character. Now, uh, if you look at the first four of the Ten Commandments, the table one of the law, they basically tell you to love God. And God loves God better than anyone else does. And if you look at the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, it says basically to love people. And God loves people better than any people do. So God loves himself and God loves people. Table 1, table 2. See, the Ten Commandments reflects God's character. And God, if God exists and he does, then that means that he has to be the most free being that there is. And True freedom. What is true freedom? Well, we learn that when we look at God, true freedom is the ability, is the ability to not be able to do some things. You know, there, there are things that God cannot do. God cannot cheat. God cannot lie. God cannot blaspheme. God cannot be unfaithful. He can't do any of that. He's not able. And that means true freedom is not the ability to make choices as you wish. True freedom is the ability to be the very thing you're meant to be. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments, you're being called, you're being asked, not just to obey the Ten Commandments, but to actually reflect God's character. True freedom. Not restriction, but freedom. Uh, freedom is not choices. It's not the proliferation of choices. No, it's, it's the ability to be like God, to be the one you were made to be. Okay, so tonight, you were made to be like God. That's the really the big picture, the big idea of the Ten Commandments, to reflect God's character. And that is why Paul says this incredibly outrageous uh, thing that he says in Ephesians 5.1. He says, imitate God. And this is not an idea that we talk about very often, especially as Protestants. We don't speak about the imitation of God. It sounds dangerous. How could a human being imitate God? And yet, Ephesians 5.1, Paul says, imitate God. So let's think about it. It's really the summary of the whole of the Ten Commandments. Imitate God. First, you're created to imitate God, and then secondly, recreated to imitate God. All right, so let's think about that. First, created to imitate. All right, I just want to say and point out, this is a command. So you see it right there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God. It's a command. Uh, the word to imitate here is the Greek word mimesis. And it means, uh, in, in English, just to mimic, to copy, to follow after. And another way to translate it, translate it is to talk about models. So every single one of us grows up in this world, and we need models. We need people that we look at and recognize as role models in our lives. And you come across the Bible, and you see that the Bible gives you lots of models in this life. So if you were with us last week, last Sunday morning, 
In Mark chapter 12, Jesus pointed at a poor widow and said, look at her. She follows God when she gave her whole self, so follow her. So we need, we need models in this life. Sometimes uh, the Bible says David is a model. Sometimes. Ruth is a model. There's all sorts of models across the Bible. Another way that the New Testament talks about this is to use uh, the Greek word icon. So icon is translated in your New Testament as image, but it can also be translated as model in a way, an image, a way of doing something, something you can follow, something you can copy. Uh, I wonder who you think are the biggest icons of Western history. I was thinking about this uh, this week. I think it's got to be Elvis Presley. Uh, I think it's got to be Princess Diana, maybe. Michael Jordan. Uh, someone might add Taylor Swift. You know, Lionel Messi. <laughs> you would have your list, right? You would contradict my list. The Bible comes and says that every single one of us needs models. And the reason models, icons, that very literal Greek word exists, is because we were made to mimic. We were made to copy. We were made to look at something and try to image it ourselves. And the Bible looks at the icons of Western history and says, every one of these human examples, these human icons, they're great in their own way. But a true icon, a true object of mimicry, someone we're, we're supposed to follow, is only good. A human being is only good to follow is if they are imitating God. That's what Paul says. Imitate God and really look to people, look around and imitate those who are imitating God. And so Paul says something unbelievable. He says, follow me, imitate me at one point in his letters as I imitate God. He says that. It's outrageous, but he says this is exactly what we're made to mimic. We have to have people to look out and to follow and to mimic. Now, how? Uh, Well, verse 1 and 2, he says, imitate God, and then you see in verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. And that means that he's taking this, making this a bit clearer. Verse 1, imitate God. Verse 2, as Christ Jesus loved us. Now, what he's doing there is saying to you, here's how you imitate God more specifically. Imitate Jesus Christ. So if you want to know how to imitate God, you look at the life of Jesus and you imitate Jesus' life. Verse 2. Love like he loved. Now, this is where it gets really dangerous. This is where we have an instinct, maybe you have an instinct tonight, to push back and to say, the imitation of Christ. There's been lots of books written with that title. And it seems dangerous, and, and there's a few reasons why. There have been three basic models in the history of Christianity for what it means to imitate Jesus Christ, and all of them have been one-sided, and that's why we feel instinctively that this idea of imitating Jesus can be dangerous. The first of these models that developed a few hundred years into the life of the church was the ideal of becoming a martyr, and what happened here was people looked at, G- at the Gospels, and they said, look, Jesus, uh, Jesus is, takes his life, he gives his life away in physical death. He suffers physically. And that means the best way in this life you can imitate Jesus is if you're willing and you take it all the way to the point where you give your life away physically for him. And so there came a season in, the church, in church history where people were chasing martyrdom. They were really seeking it. And it created levels of Christians. You know, you can only really, be a, you can only really have assurance 
that you're going to go to heaven if you become a martyr. And so people chase after it. And it created classes of Christians. Now, we have something similar in our day. You know, there are normal Christians, and then there are missionaries, you know? And then there are missionaries, and then there are the missionaries that go to North Korea, right? Uh, There's classes. This is how the idea of purgatory developed. You know, there's levels. How can we really be sure everybody, everybody, only the martyr really deserves it, right? It's it's a model. It's one-sided. It's, a, it's an idea of imitation of Christ that kind of missed it, actually. Now, there's a second way that's one-sided that came along, and it transferred from the martyr to the monk. And the monk looked at Jesus' life and said, well, it's not really about his physical suffering by itself. It's about his solitude. So Jesus went out into the desert, remember, for 40 days, and he starved. And so the monk said, I need to do the same thing. I need to go out into the desert. I need to starve. I need to take away the goods of this life like Jesus. He was homeless. I have to be homeless. And so they followed his example in exactly the same ways. And he says, so there, look, there's normal Christians, and then there's the monk. There's classes. And this is the real imitation of Jesus. Now, there's the martyr ideal. There's the, the monastic ideal. But then the third one that developed much more recently in our history is the, uh, is the modern ideal. And in the modern ideal people look at the gospels the modern person the modern person looks at the gospels and says the imitation of christ that's it uh, jesus you know the gospel is not good news the the gospel is this that jesus is my example jesus came into the world so that i could imitate him so that i could follow him as an example you see the modern rationalist looks and says jesus is not my savior he is my example and so christianity is nothing but imitation if I imitate Jesus, he'll teach me how to have the best life, how to be a good person, how to be ethical. So Jesus is a great ethical example, but he's not a savior. Now, we've got these three models of imitation throughout world history, church history, and that's why people get nervous about this idea of the imitation of Christ. And yet, we come to Ephesians 5.1 and Paul says, imitate God, and here's how, imitate Jesus. And so we've got to say, we've got to say, okay, what, what do you mean? And so the Reformation came along and says this. Let's just lay it out. He says, they said, look, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says Jesus can only be your example. You can only imitate Jesus if he is first your redeemer. He has to be your redeemer if you want him to be your example. And if he is your redeemer, then he also has become your example. And so if you look tonight to Jesus as redeemer, Paul comes along and says, now imitate him. Imitate him. But how? Uh, Before we get to that, let me just say, where is Paul getting this? Um, Paul is getting this, I think, from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, that's the very beginning, by the way. Verses 26 to 28, where God makes us and he says, I've created you in my image, in my likeness. It's the very same idea. God said, I created you in my image, so you're made to image God. You're made to imitate God. It's the very, very same notion. One way to think about it is that um, to imitate God means to be like a mirror. An image, to image something means that you are a living mirror. Okay, what, how does a mirror work? Uh, I don't really know, to be honest, but uh, you can take a mirror and I know this, that whatever you stand a mirror in front of, the mirror ref- reflects the thing that it's facing, right? You, you stand in front of a mirror, a mirror reflects you. You put a mirror in front of anything else, and the mirror is going to reflect that thing. 
God says in the beginning, you were made to image, to reflect, to mimic, to mirror God. Made in God's image to image God. You're made to mimic. You're made to look at models and copy. And that means that you're always in life going to put your heart, the mirror of your heart, you are a mirror, you're a walking mirror in front of something. And whatever it is that you give your attention to most, that you're most attuned to, you will begin to reflect. You're a a living mirror, a walking mirror. You have to mimic, you have to image, you have to copy. You can't help but do it. It's, It's in our very DNA. It's down in the depths of our bones. That's why the very first commandment is, the, God says at the beginning, have no other gods before me, right? Because if you, the mirror of your heart stands and is most attuned to anything creaturely, if that's the thing you focus on mo- most, you will start to image it. You'll start to reflect it. You'll start to become it. Uh, you worship whatever you're thinking about the most. You worship whatever your mind is most attuned to, your heart is most attuned to, and whatever you worship, you become like that thing. That's a universal reality. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great writer and poet, he says, uh, he, he wrote about this. He said this, a person will worship something. We may think our tribute is paid in secret, but it will come out. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts, uh, that, sorry, let me read that again. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our loves and our character. Therefore, it requires us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming, he said. Now, Charles Darwin, in, late in his life, he wrote an autobiography. He wrote about his own story, and he says something really interesting about this. He talks about, in his autobiography, how he used to love poetry and music, and how he used to be, uh, he used to reflect often on the world of his own emotions, and how he was attuned to his own psychology. And he writes about how he loved to read Shakespeare and the beautiful lines of Shakespeare. He says, I took great pleasure in poetry and in Shakespeare. But then he writes, 20 to 30 years later, I cannot read a line of it. It nauseates me. Why? And he talks about this. He says, I spent 30 years in deep, analytical, scientific obsession day in and day out with collecting facts and analyzing them. He says, my mind has become a machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of data. And he says, I've lost my taste for poetry. I've lost my taste for music. I've lost my taste for the world of the emotions. And he says, it's because I stared at scientific data day in and day out from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed for 30 years. And now I, he says the loss of this ability to, to read poetry, to delight in music, he says is the loss of happiness. It was injurious to my moral character, enfeebling to the moral part of my character. Now you see what he's saying. You got to get underneath it a little bit to connect it with what we're talking about. He says, you know, he regrets it. He's regretting it. And he's saying, he's realizing this. He's saying, I spent my entire life worshiping science. That's all I did. Now, science is a very good thing, but he's, he's realizing he wasn't balanced. His, he put his heart in front of scientific data all day, all the time, and it's not just that he did science, he became it. He became a machine 
He couldn't do anything else. It's all his mind could think about. You see, whatever you are standing in front of most often, whatever your heart is looking at, attuned to, you will become. You will reflect it until you become it. You become what you worship. It's an age-old truth. Now, that means here that Paul is saying you're not being invited to imitate. You do imitate. You do mimic. You do image. You have to. The question is who? What? What is it that your heart is most attuned to, most standing in front of most often? That is the very thing that you're becoming. Now, secondly, that means we need to be recreated in order to imitate rightly. We need to be recreated uh, in order to grow in the imitation of God. How do we do it? Let me give you two, as, and we'll be done. They're right here in what Paul says, and here they are. Uh, in verse 1 and 2, Paul says, be an imitator of God. And that means imitate Jesus Christ. How? The first thing we need is, here's the first thing, a realist self-understanding. Okay, a realist self-understanding. Just before Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul talks about putting away the old self, being honest about the condition of your heart, being honest about what you're worshiping in this life. He says you got to put away the old self, and we need a realist self-understanding if we're going to ever be imitators of God. There are uh, two main ways, in other words, that you can look at the Ten Commandments. Let's bring it back to the Ten Commandments. There are two main ways you can look at the Ten Commandments and be wrong, not really see what the Bible's trying to do with the Ten Commandments. Here's the first way. You can look at the Ten Commandments after this 11 weeks we've been going through it, and you can say, you know, I haven't always been a perfect person. I know that. I've made mistakes. But I'm not a liar, and I'm not a cheater, and I've not committed adultery, and I've not murdered. I don't steal. You know, I don't watch uh, TikTok videos at work. Uh, I don't steal time from my employer. You know, I'm, I'm generally speaking a pretty good person. And I saw one pastor call this, this is a Saint, Saint Nick theology, right? Because you look at the Ten Commandments and you say, I want to obey the Ten Commandments. I want to be a good person, and I want to be a good person for goodness sake. It's good to be good. It's good to be moral. It's good, it's good to chase after goodness for goodness sake. You know, that's a wrong way of looking at the Ten Commandments, right? In other words, you say, you know, you better watch out. You better not cry. You know, he, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So you better be good for goodness sake. You read the Ten Commandments and you say, I want to be good for goodness sake. I want to be moral. I want to be a good person. That's Saint Nick theology. And you begin to say, is that God or Santa? Right? And the, you see, the first wrong way to look at the Ten Commandments is say, I was made. Here it is. Let me make it simpler. I was made to be good. I was made to be a moral person. And Paul's coming and saying, no, the Ten Commandments don't exist because they're telling you you were made to be a moral person, a good person. They tell you you were made to imitate the God who made you. You're not, you don't exist for goodness sake, not at all. You exist for something much greater than goodness sake, but for God's sake. You're made to imitate the living God, the God who made you, see? Now, there's a second way to be wrong about the Ten Commandments, and this is where imitation can be dangerous, this idea Here's why. It's the rich young ruler understanding of the Ten Commandments. So in Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus meets with this rich young ruler. 
and he says to the rich young ruler, the, the rich young ruler says, what must I do to get eternal life? And he says, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to obey all the commandments, all ten of the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, you know, well, I've, I've, never, I've never murdered anybody. I've never, he goes through the list in his head, and he said, I think I'm okay. I followed all the commandments from my youth. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, now go and give away all your possessions to the poor and follow me. Now, the rich young ruler had asked, what must I do to get eternal life? You see, he, he looked at the Ten Commandments, and it wasn't, I want to be good for goodness sake. It was, I want to get to heaven for goodness sake. What, what must, what, how did the Ten Commandments get me to heaven? That's, it's for heaven's sake that I'm here to obey the Ten Commandments. And it's almost as if Jesus gives into that. Jesus says, yeah, obey the Ten Commandments, and you will. And you say, this isn't the gospel that I've been reading until Jesus says, now go give away all your possessions to the poor and come and follow me. And you realize what Jesus was doing. You know, th- this guy said, I've obeyed all ten of the Ten Commandments. And he says, well, go give away your possessions. And he can't do it. Why? Jesus is trying to get him to see he never got back past command number one. So you don't have any other gods before the Lord. You see, this rich young ruler had been staring at money, at stuff his whole life. And that's why he's named Rich young ruler. His name is wealth. His name is stuff. His name is material. You see, he had let the mirror of his heart stand in front of stuff for so long he had become stuff. And Jesus is trying to say, you don't see your need. You never got past commandment number one. Now look, here's the way to grow into imitating God. You've you've got to be a realist. You've got to say tonight, the first thing the Ten Commandments do is show me I never got past commandment number one. I never did. You shall, I ne, I ne, I've, I've looked at things in this life. I've pointed my heart at stuff, at creaturely things, and I've, they've become my God. I never got past commandment number one at all. I, I know I have a need. I can't imitate God. I never did. I never did. You've got to be a realist. Uh, one theologian talks about this. He says, the, you know, the modern person looks, and he says, Jesus is a really great example And then he says, you know, the modern person says, Jesus, I read the Gospels, I see what a great example Jesus is. This is what it looks like to obey the Ten Commandments. This is who I want to be. And the theologian says, go and try it. Give it a shot. Try to go and imitate Jesus. And you'll immediately become a realist about yourself. And he goes on, he says, Jesus Christ felt his emotions deeper than the rest of us. His intellect was stronger than ours. His will was unshaken in the face of all temptation. And he says, to see Jesus truly is to experience judgment on our conscience, to know our powerlessness, to truly imitate him. Indeed, if he is only an example to you, he comes to judge you and not to save you. Only when we know him as redeemer or do we dare look at him, do we ever dare look at him and consider him our example. He says that when you really look at Jesus and you say, Oh, I want to imitate him, you become a realist. You know that in that moment you're judged. That that's the first thing the Ten Commandments come to, to teach you. What does Paul say here? Paul says, Jesus Christ came to give himself up in verse two as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, let's just put it plainly, as this theologian did. 
He says, there is no way you are ever going to become what you were truly made to be, an imitator of God, an imitator of Jesus, unless tonight you know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer first. You have to come to him tonight as your Redeemer. No matter how many times you have, tonight is the night to come to him and say, Jesus, you're my Redeemer. If you want to step out tomorrow and become, he be your living example. Uh, Jesus Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering for you. That means Jesus Christ was judged in your place. Uh, when, you, when you look at his life, you say, I deserve judgment. When you look at the Ten Commandments, you have to say, I deserve judgment. I'm a realist. I never got past commandment number one. And only then can you see that the judge who was judged in your place has come to be your redeemer. Uh, have you ever been to Camera Obscura across the way here? Uh, I took the kids to Camera Obscura uh, last Christmas time. And, you know, you go in there and they have all these funhouse mirrors. And they're all, they're all curved, right? And you, they, they show you, you know, they show you who you really are. No. Well, actually, yes. Right? A funhouse mirror. Are you a realist about yourself? Your heart is a funhouse mirror. It's meant to reflect the living God. And it's all curved and bent and curved in on itself and pointing back at you. You've replaced them. With looking at all sorts of, your heart is attuned to all sorts of other things. And you've become them. We're made to be perfectly flat, beautiful mirrors, images of God, and we're funhouse mirrors. Uh, Jesus Christ came to be judged in your place for the fact that you are bent in on yourself, curved in, facing the wrong direction. Uh, Now, that means, lastly, and we'll close with this, that means that if you know Jesus Christ as your Redeemer tonight, you can move forward from here, <clears throat> growing in this idea of the imitation of God with an adopted self-understanding. Here's the very last thing. Uh, you see this in, verses, in verse 1. He says, be imitator of God, verse 1. Imitate Jesus, verse 2. And right in between, there's that little clause, as beloved children. So he reframes this idea of imitation. This is what the three models of imitation, martyr, monk, And modern rationalists all missed. And that's this idea that in order to truly imitate God, imitate Christ, you've got to know yourself to be adopted. Adopted into his family, a son or a daughter of the living king. And here's the the last thing. Uh, The only way that you can imitate God is if, if he is your father, not your judge. And that means when you come to Christ as redeemer, here's the big idea, you now have access to God. How do you grow in the imitation of God, the imitation of Christ? And it's all about this. You now, redeemed by Jesus, have access to God. Access. Uh, Think about the way a child has access to their father. You know, sometimes, sometimes, in the middle of the night, children get thirsty. They forgot to bring water to their bedside and they wake up in the middle of the night, and their mouth is parched, and they want a drink. Um, I've had that happen once or twice. And you know what happens? You're, you're asleep, and a child comes, and they, said, they wake you up and say, I'm so thirsty. Now, imagine the access that a child has to their dad, to their mom. You know, when, when a little child comes and says, I am thirsty, a mom and a dad say, you know, they might do it slightly reluctantly, but they get up and they go and they get that child water. Now, if, you're, if your colleague, if your employer 
If your employee at 3 a.m. knocked on your front door and said, you know what, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was so thirsty and I just thought maybe you could help me get some water. You know, you might do it because it's such a strange encounter at 3 a.m. You might go to the kitchen and bring this water, but you say, what are you doing here? You know, status is everything. You say, you do not have the status to come to my house at 3 a.m. and ask me for water. The, there's only a few little, cre- little people that can do that in all the world, right? And that's my children. Nobody else can do that. You see, when, when you look at Jesus Christ and he's your redeemer, you're adopted, you have access. You can come to God like a little child thirsty in the middle of the night for water. Now, look, let's put it together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is freedom. The Spirit of the Lord, when you have the Spirit of the Lord, you have freedom. And then he says this, you can come and behold God with an unveiled face. You have access, and you will be transformed into the image of the Lord from glory to glory by degree. You see what he says? He says, when you, have, when you know yourself adopted, you have access. And when you have access, you can come behold God face to face. And it says, then you will be transformed by degree in this life. You want to imitate God? You want to become like Jesus? It says, come and behold the God that has given you access, like a son, like a daughter. daughter. Here's the secret. You want to become like God? You want to imitate God, become the one you were made to be like, to imitate Jesus? It says, come and behold him, approach him, be face-to-face with him. With God, quantity time really is quality time. Spending time with the living God, beholding him face-to-face, it's worship. That's the secret, beholding God, coming to him face-to-face. I had two illustrations to close. I only have time for one. Let me give you one. Um. There's a wonderful story, a true story about, I told this about a year ago, but this, you'll, we're going to keep hearing this illustration. It's too good not to use on an annual basis. Uh, a story of a man named Joseph Merrick. You know the story? He was, called, he was called the Elephant Man in his time. He lived in the 1880s and 90s, and uh, he was an Englishman, and he was born uh, in the south of England. And he was born with a, a, a disease that um, really disfigured his body in many ways. He was born with tumors, growths all over his body. And he ended up being sold into a carnival show, a traveling carnival. You'd pay money to observe him in that 19th century. All very true. A movie has been made about him with Anthony Hopkins. And uh, one of the things that happened is later in Joseph's life, he got treated. Uh, he was nearly beat to death by his carnival master, and he got treated by a doctor in a a hospital in London. And the doctor uh, eventually forms a relationship with Joseph and takes Joseph into his home and invites him over with his wife. Uh, The doctor and his wife hosted Joseph for afternoon tea. And Joseph Merrick, uh, the elephant man, comes to afternoon tea, and he's there, and he shows uh, the doctor and his wife a picture of his mother, and it's his only possession. He's got the clothes on his back. He's got a little picture of his mom. And uh, he says, the doctor, is, you know, he's, he's very curious. He wants to see Joseph's mother. He wants to know, you know, is this disease something he inherited by genetics or is it just him? And his mother uh, did not have the same disease. And the doctor says, well, you know, she's a, she's a wonderful woman, I'm sure. And Joseph says, um, well, if only she could see me now. 
amongst all these friends, these friends, the, the doctor and his wife, he says, maybe she would want me. And so you see, his mother had abandoned him because of his disease. And he said in this, this moment, you know, he had a friend, he had a, he had a couple that loved him, and he said, if only she could see me now. You know, if only she could see me. Now listen, uh, he needed a mother. He did. He needed a mother. His mother, if she would have stuck with him, that would have, that would have helped him so much. But let me say this. Um, even his mother, even his mother, even the best of circumstances, even the dearest of friendships could not fully and finally make him whole. Right? You were created. Let's come back to the beginning. You were created to image the God who made you, and that means you were made above all else to behold the living God face to face. You were made for God. And that means no matter what you faced in life, and boy, did Joseph have a hard life. The most important thing that we all need is to hear God say to you, you're my son. You're my daughter. Joseph needed that above all else. He needed, he needed to, to hear my son. God the Father said that to him. My, he needs, you need more than anything tonight just to hear God say to you, my son, my daughter, and for you to behold him face to face. And when you behold him, you will take on his character, the very thing you were made for. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask tonight that you would make us conformed to the image of the Son, which is, just means to imitate Jesus. And we give thanks tonight that no matter what our life situation and no matter how broken it's been, that we can have tonight the thing we need above all, and that's to be named adopted, a status, uh, a status so precious to be able to come uh, before you with total and utter access, all because of our Redeemer, Jesus. And so as we close this Ten Commandments series, uh, we don't want to walk away thinking, Lord, that the Ten Commandments are all about our morality or our goodness or anything like that, or even... Uh, or even earning our way to heaven, far be it. Um, we, we want to come tonight and know that the Ten Commandments exist to show us what it looks like to be conformed to the image of the one we were made, who we were made uh, for and by and unto. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you would give us your character uh, only because you've given us redemption in the Son. So I pray tonight for somebody that they would find redemption and hope tonight in Jesus Christ judged in their place in the way they failed to image you Lord he did and yet he died so we we pray tonight for somebody that they would find hope and redemption in Jesus Christ and further for all of us Lord that you would teach us what it means to imitate Jesus Christ and his character and we pray these things in Christ's name amen